welcome to the latest episode of the CMO's Guide to China Marketing. My name's Stephen. I'm Mike. And every month, Mike and I bring you the latest news and views on all things China marketing before taking a deep dive into one aspect of China marketing strategy that we know will make your China marketing much more effective. This month, we've got a topic that's quite close to everybody's hearts. And while I think we're going to have a little bit of fun with discussing old war stories, we're going to look at crisis communications. And I think anybody that's been around marketing communications for any length of time probably has a few horror stories. Mike, are you going to have a couple for us to share? I might have a few stories. <laughs> awesome. But before that, just like we do every episode, we'll start with a little section we called China Dumplings. So China Dumplings is our take on all the latest news or views and opinions that are pertinent to China marketing. And our first dumpling this month is Mike Clubhouse lasted about a day in China. Did you use it at all? I got an invitation and I signed up. Right. And that's about as far as I got. I was kind of excited to get into it. It looked like some cool rooms and stuff. Yeah, I did. I think on paper, it really did look fun. But are you surprised about the issue that it had in China? Are you surprised that it lasted as long as it did? What's your take? Yeah, I was surprised it lasted a day. <laughs> I don't know who let that get t- turned on here. If you can't uh, control the servers here, or if the government doesn't have access to the servers, basically, you're not going to have that type of thing happening here. I've read some follow-up reports that, um, well, first of all, there was a Chinese equivalent called Club Horse, which lasted slightly longer than Clubhouse did. I think it lasted about a day and a half before that was shut down. I've seen as well, there's a recent report that there's about 100 to 200 teams, according to estimates, who are working on a Chinese equivalent to this at the moment. One of those is ByteDance, who owns TikTok, or as we know here in China as Douyin. And the other is Xiaomi, who are a large electronics goods manufacturer and and tech company. Both of those are currently working on invitation-only audio services uh, for professionals. So it's going to be an interesting space to follow, but I think there's going to be, they're all going to run up to the same challenges. I think the question or the thing that was great was that it was uncensored. So people could jump in the room, get in the line yep. and have an experience without anyone else looking over their shoulder. Yep. So I don't know if the China grown apps will be able to do that. Uh, most likely not. That's the answer. Yeah. So I don't know if it'll garner the same amount of interest from okay. my point of view. Interesting. Well, I see a lot of people outside of China jumping on the clubhouse bandwagon. So I guess for us marketeers who are in market, it's a little bit wait and see. Our next dumpling this month is focusing on group buy platforms, which have been very popular in probably the last 12 to 18 months here in China. Local authorities have imposed fines totaling 6.5 million RMB around $1 million on five community groups based on irregular price fixing. There's some big names that have been caught up in this as well, including Alibaba, Tencent, JD.com, to name just a few. And it seems to be that these fines are very much targeting this growing sector as the state is stepping up regulation over some of the bigger internet players in China. Mike, have you seen this story? Did you find it interesting? Yeah, I mean, it's an anti-monopoly story. So I think the anti-monopoly rules on the books are a bit old and they're being updated now. And I know that just this last People's Congress, they're updating those. I mean, some of it's ridiculous. Like, why can't you have a link inside WeChat that links to Taobao? Yeah. Um, That's pretty bad behavior for these platforms. So I I think it's for the best, to be honest. Uh 
Well, we're about a month out of Chinese New Year. Yeah. And we've had some time to check out Chinese New Year's posts and see which performed well and which didn't perform well. Um, I love ones from like BMW and some of the big players doing very beautiful posts with a lot of interactive elements. Yeah, I always love the Nike and the Adidas ones when they go head to head on their family messaging for things like that. One of the challenges for a lot of the brands is to make a post that actually gets any readership. Sure. Just imagine every single official account is putting out a Chinese New Year post. What's going to make yours special? Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of it, you know, with a lot of our clients, they're the lowest reads of the year, actually. That's which, interesting. Which is a disappointment because you put a lot of effort into it. But I think there's just so much out there that uh, unless you're doing something that's really crazy and special, it's just going to fall to deaf ears for the most yeah, part. That's interesting. I think so. It's almost like a, a message fatigue on the part of the audience. I put a video on our Instagram, which I would encourage listeners to, to check out at Brandigo underscore global. But it was I walked through our creative team. And if you looked at every single monitor on all of the creatives, they were always working. It was the bull was on all of them. They were all working on the Chinese New Year posts. Um, so it's interesting that that kind of end product, I don't think it's the end product. I think it's just saturation. Yeah, and they had some beautiful uh, work as well. Yeah, they did, absolutely. So, you know, maybe there's something to think about timing or how to make it super special. Mm-hmm. But a bit more thought has to go into it, I think. Cool. So my last one for this month is a little bit quirky, but I think there's a serious message behind it as well. There was a South Korean animation, which has in the past been quite popular in China. It's about a cat. I'm not going to try and pronounce the cat's name or the show's name. It created quite a lot of controversy recently around some of the images pertinent to China or relating to China and has caused quite a stir amongst Chinese netizens who are and have been known in the past to be quite a powerful voice here in China with accusations that some of it was disrespectful to China as a nation. Now, what was interesting here, and there is a genuine takeaway, I think, for for foreign brands here is to be aware of some of the imagery and some of the phrases that you are using in your China marketing. Mike, one example that I thought sprung out for me here was one of the, the episodes of this animation had an image of the map of China. And that's some of the, that's one of the images that led to kind of some of the upset here. Well, you can't have a map that isn't following the official guidelines. Exactly. So for all the brands out there that have grabbed a map off of Google or downloaded it and some of the colors of some of the areas don't match the ones that the official China map has, you're going to get into big, big trouble. Yeah. Really interested. And it's something that doesn't come up very often when we talk about localization, but can have a huge impact here. So that was our March China dumplings. Right. So let's get straight into our main topic of the month. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to be covering all things related to crisis communications here in China. Mike, I hinted, we've all got our war stories. Um, My very first job, when I was working in London, I spent four hours locked in a cupboard with the entire production team of BBC's Watchdog, who our British listeners will recognise. 
the end product of being locked in that broom cupboard with the presenter and the camera crew and the director was not very beneficial to my client, despite my objections. I, I'm sure you've got some great war stories for crisis comms in China. Being locked in a closet is, <laughs> sounds intense. I was almost in a riot nice, on uh, Wang Fujing in Beijing. Let's, let's, let's hear it. Well, we had the uh, great opportunity to work with an A-list celebrity. She flew in from Hong Kong. She brought her hair and makeup. She brought her hairstylist, the whole gear. Uh, we did photo shoots in the morning. And then the afternoon, we had her hosted at a, uh, a timepiece store, at a watch store. Okay. Right in the middle of Beijing. Okay. And we had a champagne welcome for her. We had some of the top retailers and distributors there to meet her on hand. I was there. Was it, is, was it a watch product? Product? What was the product? Yeah, it's a watch. Okay. It was a, it was a very nice watch. Um, I can't say the brand yet. No. And we we had hired about 15 security people to take care of her. This was all negotiated. So we had about 10 of them stationed outside the watch store. We had all of, all of our police licensing. Everything was done. Police were supposed to be there too. And kind of in the middle of the event, I heard a bang. I looked up and I saw a very angry man slamming his fist against the full, like, uh, glass windows. And I was like, what the heck is going on? And then I, I looked around, and there was a crowd of maybe 60 or 70 people out there. The security that we had hired, the ex-military tough guys in black, <laughs> they were gone. No words to be seen. <laughs> they had retreated. <laughs> and fortunately, we had an escape route planned, actually. So we took her out the back, and I don't even think she noticed. We were like, event's over, next one. Wow. Took her out the back. Um, and then that started, some people took some pictures and started to place on social media. You know, why is this A-lister inside having all the champagne and the poor people are outside and wow. made it into a, a, a social uh, differences kind of thing. Uh -huh. So that was pretty scary. And then so we had to deal with that whole scary situation. Then we had to deal with some of the uh, – um, Thing, the uh, things that happened after that as so well. So the fallout online. Yeah, the fallout. Stuff like that. Um, so uh, all of this is part of crisis communications. Sure. And, you know, we learned a lot from that event. But having these plans already in place, it was like one of the best, most important things that we learned. Yeah. So let's start off from there then. What we'll do as we do with every episode, we'll go through what we think are the, the four most important aspects of crisis communications here in China, but we'll go into a little bit of detail at this point onwards and, and type into some of your expertise. You mentioned having that crisis plan in place. And I think most comms practitioners have that first crisis where they haven't got the plan. So they very quickly learn to put that into place. But what sort of things would you include if you were doing a crisis communications plan for a brand in China? How would you approach it? What sort of things would you include? I, I think most of it is generally the same as in the West. Yeah. So A, to have a plan. And it's shocking how many people don't have a plan. Sure. And the plan should include who's on, let's say, a crisis management team. Yeah. Who's going to be the person who talks to the media, who needs to approve the messaging, and even uh, the phone numbers of everyone. Sure. Because when these things go down, it's very fast. Sure. Uh, who has the approval for messaging. Um, and then part of that plan, to even have pre-written messages yeah. prepared, press releases, just basic things that you can at least use as a, as a template. And if you have time to actually practice with that team, 
what do you do if something happens? Yeah. So these great what if scenario planning yeah. is really the smart, smart way to do it. Yeah. One of the things that I found is you talk about even back to having the right people's phone numbers and stuff like that. I think it's always worth in China figuring out what the preferred method of communication is. Because I know people who don't even answer their cell phone when it rings, but they might respond to a WeChat call. So it's kind of useful to include that sort of data as well. That's true. And I also find here in China, one of the special things is that you may have competitors um, doing some evil things against your brand. Yeah. Online, yeah. so you may have suddenly like a whole bunch of negative listings about the brand, a lot of criticism, or suddenly thousands of posts on your social media uh, trashing you, and you have to figure out okay, where is this coming from, and how do we deal with it? So you mentioned some sort of scenario planning and scenario kind of rehearsals, if you like. That would probably be top of your list, and to be the type of scenario to practice for some maybe black hat social media operations from competitors. Yeah, exactly. And if someone's posting on your social media, do you have a plan? Are you responding to it? And in the West, we always say, okay, you have to respond mm -hmm. to the social media. But there are some circumstances here where it may be better just to not say anything. It may not be a real person or it may be someone working against your brand. So you have to look at it and, and measure it yeah. and figure out if it's worth responding to. Also, because the news cycle here is so fast, sure. uh, that may be worth just laying it slide, let it go. Uh, we had one case for a headphone brand where there was suddenly a very negative article in the major review piece online. And we contacted them to try to figure out what this was all about. And we found out, okay, well, they didn't review the correct headphones. Those headphones weren't even available here in China. Mm. And most of the information was false. Oh, wow. And then the esteemed editor came back to us and said, I'm happy to take this down. It's going to cost you <laughs> 20,000 RMB, like $4,000. Wow. So a, a lot of that stuff still goes on. So you have to be careful. You have to have a good team representing you that can help sort out uh, the good from the bad. So in, in that case where you had the, I guess, in inverted commas, unscrupulous editor, did you pay the fee or were the tactics that the brand could employ to counteract that? We did not pay the fee. Mm -hmm. And we basically put out a whole bunch of articles using all the same keywords that this guy used, Smart. but in a positive sense, <laughs> nice. and pushed his article basically off the front page. Cool. And like I said, the, everything moves so quickly here that eventually that, that just moves down and it's one of 100 articles about that headphone. So Yeah. I think just kind of following on from that, because we do talk about some different practices when it comes to media relations here in China. And We've, we did a whole podcast recently on CMO's Guide to Media Relations, but one aspect of public relations, media relations in the West is maintaining those really strong relationships with, with the key journalists, key reporters, key editors within your space. And that's always served me well in a crisis situation previously because you've just got that different dynamic. So even though the journalists might be on the attack a little bit, they're approaching it differently because they know you and you've given them good stories in the past. So, there's less aggression, there's less of a will to bring the brand down almost. And I think that's true here in China as well. And again, it shows the importance of good media relations here. So even though the media works slightly differently, it's still good to have that good relationship, to be regularly in touch with your journalists, helping them with good and positive stories whenever you can, so that when a crisis happens, you've got that good relationship and you can certainly manage the situation better. 
I also think one thing is that as part of your overall communications plan is to, if you're a larger company, to have a public affairs person who's working with government associations, um, those type of people. Interesting. So that for a longer term, they may be able to help you. Okay. Uh, Because if the media or if social media and people start to get out of control, those government entities may be able to help rein things back in. Okay. So it's that's a longer term play. It's not something that you're going to pick up the phone and do tomorrow. No. And your company, you know, this is usually talking about larger multinational type of companies, to yeah. be honest. Uh, but just considering that as part of your plan is also something. Interesting. So that example I talked about me being locked up with the BBC Watchdog production team, it was it's a fun story to tell to new people to the industry now, and I use it quite a lot when I'm talking to students here. But there's a point in there about the client having somebody who is comfortable and available to speak to press. And I think it's the same here in China as well. It's not a case of clamming up and shutting up shop. You have to have somebody who's willing and open to having a dialogue with the media during a crisis. And I think it's the it's the same thing here. Right. And we've seen in the past, if no one steps up, if they don't release anything and the press is just clamoring for news or a statement, they're going to fill it in. Yeah. Or they're going to think you're hiding something, sure. which is even worse. Yeah. So at some point, the brands really have to be prepared to release something, yeah. um, especially if it's just taken off. Yeah. And we've seen that a few times. So. Sure. Just to bring the little deep dive section to a close, what would be your big advice to any brand with regards to crisis management, crisis comms here in China? Sure. I think my mantra is be fast, be accurate, and be consistent also. So that's a little bit of our deep dive into crisis communications here in China. Just to put all that into summary for you, here is our top five key takeaways for the CMO's Guide to China Crisis Communications. Number one, have a crisis plan in place before the crisis happens. Two, designate your crisis management team. Be detailed. Who is responsible for what? Who's available to talk to the press? Have all of their contact information and how they prefer to be contacted in that plan. And if you're working with an agency, what's their role? How do they fit into it? Number three, practice those what if scenarios. So you know what to do under different type of circumstances, whether it's online or offline. Number four, pre-draft crisis management messages and have them approved beforehand. This ties back to Mike's mantra of be fast and be accurate and be consistent. And number five is listen and monitor your key channels so that you know when something's going down and when it's going to happen. So social media monitoring, media monitoring, If you don't know what's happening, then you can't react to it. There we have it. That's our latest in our series of CMO's Guide to China Marketing podcasts. And that's everything you need to know about crisis communications here in China. 
If you've got any questions or any queries, or if you want to share any of your war stories, we'd love to hear them. You can get in touch with us via all of our social media channels. You can find us at Grandigo underscore global at LinkedIn and Instagram or Grandigo Global on Facebook, where you can get in touch with us via our website. We've also got a video which goes with this series that you can find at www.grandigo.com, as well as plenty of blogs, articles, and resources to help your China marketing be more effective here in China. All that's left is to say thanks for listening. We hope you found it useful, and we'll see you next time.